Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, guys, we're less than a year out, less than a year out from Election Day 2024. Please do all you can in your states, in your neighborhoods, in your communities to be involved. Guys, be your own bullhorn. Get involved with the Lincoln Project, lincolnproject.us or jointheunion.us. Go and find a campaign near your house. Run for something. Sign up to be a volunteer at a polling place. Do what you can. You don't have to do everything, gang, but you have to do that one thing. Figure out what that one thing is and go out and make it happen. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Ashley Ehouse, the Democrat running for the United States House of Representatives to represent Pennsylvania's 1st District. Her opponent is Republican Brian Fitzpatrick, a member of who what we like to call at Lincoln Project, the Biden 18. Those are members of Congress in districts that Biden won in 2020. Ashley is a U.S. Army combat veteran, a West Point graduate, and Apache helicopter pilot who served overseas in Kuwait, Iraq, and South Korea. After her service, she used her GI Bill to get her master's degree from the University of Oxford. And during the pandemic, she worked as a policy writer and project coordinator to implement the CARES Act for county government. She currently resides in Ben Salem, Pennsylvania, but is coming to us today from Washington, D.C. Ashley, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you all so much for having me on. Well, you are one of, actually, most of our guests are like this, that after I read your biography, I feel good for you, but I feel bad about myself. So tell us a little bit about your background. So are you from Pennsylvania's first congressional district? And tell us a little bit about where that is. Right. So I, I currently live in Ben Salem. And just to put PA1 on a map for you, it is just northeast of Philadelphia. So it's a suburb of the city. And it encompasses all of Bucks County and the very eastern portion of Montgomery County. And I grew up, to be honest, moving all around southeastern Pennsylvania. And that is something I actually talk about quite a bit during the campaign because it was my mom and I for much of my childhood. So we were usually staying one step ahead of eviction notices and things like that. So we kind of bounced around. I had family in Bucks County, but also north of there. But now Ben Salem, Pennsylvania is absolutely where I live. And look, we are trying to make some change in, in PA1. So you ended up going to West Point, the United States Military Academy there. What made you decide you wanted to go that route? Because, I mean, obviously it's an incredible education. Uh, you have to be sponsored by a member of Congress to go. But you also have to give what I believe five years active duty after you graduate. So tell us why you decided that you wanted to go to West Point. I love this question. I do, because I think like so many who end up joining the service, it is always kind of a, a complicated, wonderful, beautiful story that gets you into service. So for me, my personal pathway, as I chatted about a little bit, I grew up in a family that really struggled. We were, I would say, at or below the poverty line. It was my mom and I for much of the time. And it was known from an early age that we would just not be able to afford higher education. And I was doing really well in school, and I had a next-door neighbor who was a high school teacher whose son had gone to the Air Force Academy. And to be honest, now that I'm a little bit older, I look back, I think he saw some potential in me and said, hey, Ash, look, let's look at maybe helping you get into an academy. You, you can serve, and it's a good way to get an education. So that was my pathway there. And funny enough, it was actually Rick Santorum who nominated me to the Academy a million <laughs> years ago. Um, and it would have been fall or winter of 2005. But then when I got to the Academy, 
it was this wonderful experience of doors being opened up for me, but also, you know, this was in the time before Don't Ask, Don't Tell being repealed or really strong sexual assault and harassment policies being put in place. So it was a unique time, I think, especially to be a woman in the military. We were also actively at war and just so many great experiences came out of that. And for me, Adding up all of those years, and happy to get into a little bit more, but adding up all those years that I served, about 13 years in total, I think has prepared me to run for Congress, especially in a Pennsylvania's first that has a leader, well, we'll use that term generously here, a representative who has no courage, who at every turn when we have asked courage of him has failed us. I think having someone who knows what it is to actually serve is so, so important. So I want to ask a couple of questions, one about Ben Salem. And, you know, running for Congress is one of those things that is, first of all, you got to do it. If you win, you've got to do it every two years. But secondly, you know, you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of constituents, but it also comes down to a fairly narrow geographic area. So tell me about, you know, because what it sounds like in your upbringing and how you got to West Point was that there was a real sense of community that helped you get to that point. And so now tell us a little bit about the community in whether or not it's in the town you live in or, or Pennsylvania's first more broadly. Absolutely. And I want to actually start by kind of stepping back and defining community in the different ways that I think it can be defined here, because starting out with, I think, the privilege of being able to grow up in one place and, you know, have one home and your family never move is something I actually talk about a lot on the campaign trail. My family moved constantly. So my community, much like the military, was always this like moving caravan. And we were able to find kinship wherever we went. And that is, I think, such a skill to be able to find community wherever you are. And now in Pennsylvania's first, we do have a lot of families that are able to find community even when they are struggling to make ends meet. And just talking about PA1 at large, it is comprised mostly of Bucks County which is the bellwether county for Pennsylvania, and so goes Pennsylvania, so goes the country. So all eyes are typically on Bucks County every election cycle. It is so critical. And I think the reason why it is such a bellwether county is it's a microcosm of the country. In the very northern part, we have more rural voters. In the central part, we have more condensed townships, um, a little bit bluer of an area. And then in the lower part of the district, which is where I live in Ben Salem, we have a lot of working class families, a lot of good union families. So you have this really beautiful kind of tapestry of different communities there. And look, Pennsylvania's first is pretty pragmatic. They want a representative who will fight for democracy. They want a representative who will fight for the right to safe and legal abortions. They want a representative who will show courage when it's called upon them. And Right now, Brian Fitzpatrick is not meeting any of those challenges. At every turn, he is voting for Jim Jordan as speaker. He's then voting for Mike Johnson as speaker. He is showing his hand as someone who will align and kowtow to the far-right MAGA extremists. And we just recently, in this past election last Tuesday, saw a wonderful blue wave come through Bucks County in particular, but also Montgomery County, so PA1 at large. And it was voters and folks standing up and saying, look, we are rejecting this extremism. And I think that is something that's going to carry forward very well into 2024. And as I understand it, and, and I have a lot of fans on social media who live in your part of the world, and I get a lot of direct messages from them about what's going on in your neck of the woods. And it sounds like 
a bunch of these Moms for Liberty kooks at the school board level got pushed back again after Fitzpatrick. And let me just say for everybody there, Brian Fitzpatrick is one of these guys. He's a quote unquote problem solver. He considers himself a moderate Democrat. But what he is, is someone who has really been able to, and very few people have been able to do this, thread the needle with people in his district, which did go for President Biden in 2020, as you know, Ashley, but also, you know, maintain one foot in sort of MAGA land so that he doesn't draw a primary from his right. And as you said, in this latest speaker debacle amongst the Republicans, remember that he he voted for McCarthy. All right. Well, I mean, that sort of made sense. But then he voted for Jim Jordan, someone who is not a moderate, who has never been a moderate, does not want to be a moderate, then voted for Johnson, who's even further into crazy land. And I know at that point, Ashley, we're really into shades of weirdness. But Johnson, not a moderate, not normal. You know, this is a guy who, you know, his wife runs a, you know, this therapy where, you know, they try and reprogram, I put that in air quotes, you know, LGBT kids, you know, he hangs a, you know, God above all flag outside his door, you know, doesn't have a bank account. Like, and so like all of the things that Fitzpatrick claims to stand for are things that should be antithetical if you're going to vote for somebody like Mike Johnson for speaker, who is anti-democratic, was an architect of, you know, eventually what became January 6th. And so he is, and I've gotten some pushback from some friends of ours, Ashley, about going after Fitzpatrick. And I said, look, the most dangerous thing about a guy like Brian Fitzpatrick is that he gives MAGA legitimacy. He puts a shine of normalcy on them that they don't deserve. And he's willing to do the two-step in order to survive, not for the benefit of Pennsylvania one or the country. And remember, this guy was an FBI agent. So like you'd think he had, I mean, he's taken an oath to serve before he went to Congress. But time and time again, it's like, how do I survive in this snake pit as opposed to how do I make sure that the country and American democracy survive? There is so much I want to talk about right now with that, because that (laughs) is, you know, and thank you for asking the question. That is the heart of this. And so I will start my response by saying one of the things as a veteran, especially as a combat veteran, especially that scares me the most is how normalized the dysfunction and chaos has become. And it's almost like the frog being boiled alive in a pot. Like it's dialed up one degree or some days 10 degrees, but you know, one degree at a time, tick, tick, tick. And before you know it, we have the leading Republican and likely nominee calling people vermin at this point. Right. On Veterans Day, by the way. On Veterans Day. And when I look at people like Brian Fitzpatrick, who maybe know better, maybe don't know better, I don't know, who sell us one thing out of the side of their mouth, but then vote in a a way that is so egregious to what our country needs and deserves. That is where I keep coming back to this conversation around courage. He has none. And Pennsylvania's first, and honestly, our country deserves someone who does have that courage. And, And kind of reflecting back on your earlier question when you talked about, like, what did West Point teach you? What did you get out of that? Being a cadet at West Point taught me how to walk into a room and say what I think needed to be said and and have the courage to say that. But then I think even the harder thing is to stay in that room after you make the hard call of saying, hey, this is what needs to be said. This is what needs to be done. But stay in that room for the hours, days and weeks afterward and maybe work with people who never came around to what you said, that truth to power that you spoke and that is such an important skill for a public servant because 
you're going to have to have those hard conversations, whether the door is open or behind closed doors. And with Brian Fitzpatrick, you are exactly right. He will go on MSNBC and say one thing he will tell people he's the problem solvers. It's like, I don't care what you call yourself. You can call yourself Big Bird for all I care. It doesn't mean you're Big Bird. It's how you vote. And when you look at the votes, it's voting twice for Jim Jordan. Of course, Mike Johnson voting twice against the Women's Health Protection Act, which would have protected Roe. All of these things that we know our country deserves, he has voted against. And it's a violation of that oath that I, I took the same one in uniform. I know what it means. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo. Modern management made simple. I know I'm bopping around a little bit here, but so tell us, I like helicopters. I think they're fun. When I was at the White House, I got to ride in Marine helicopters, not Army helicopters, CH-46s, CH-53s. Occasionally, I got to fly on the, the white tops without the president in them. So I think they're a blast. But of course, you flew a di very different kind of helicopter in a very different kind of situation. So first, tell us what drew you to Army aviation, because... Um, this is not an easy path. Aviators are a special breed in and of themselves. So what took you to the path of, you know, an attack helicopter that sees real live combat? Uh, it started with LASIK, I can tell you. I, I did not have the <laughs> eyesight. That was step one. But again, I, I love going back to my time at the academy and really situating the, the historical context of it. It was before all of the branches in the army were open to women. So all of the combat branches specifically. So there were only a few at that time. And I knew from a day one at West Point, I was like, I want to go combat arms. And it doesn't mean the other ones aren't great, but I just knew for my leadership development, and my skill set, I wanted to be as close to the front line as possible. And aviation was it. And so funny enough, when I first started I was terrible. My grades were terrible. I was all over the place. Like I was so overwhelmed by everything going on. Yeah, you were a freshman in college. Yeah, you know, I was I was all over the place. And then somebody one day pulled me aside and said, hey, you know, you need really good grades to go aviation. And I locked it up real quick. So yeah, you just focus and, and get your grades going. But for me, the, the reason why I chose Army Aviation and then the attack platform when I was in flight school was I wanted to be on the front lines as a, a woman that was important to me, as someone who... I often tell folks the way I look at my service is my country saved me when I needed her most. When I was a poor kid who had no future, no stability, grew up in a really rough household, the army was there. My country was there. And it was really important to me to pay that back through combat service. So, yeah, I was really lucky to get aviation and then get the attack platform. It was a blast. Some of the best people I've ever met were my fellow pilots. I was a platoon leader at 21, 22. So just trying to figure life out. And I also got to command, which was wonderful. Well, I think we forget too. you know, I was just rewatching episodes of Band of Brothers over the weekend that when you are in the military, you know, you graduate from from West Point, you're 21, 22, you're you're a commissioned officer. You now have soldiers that are your responsibility. Right. When I was 22, Ashley, I can promise you, I didn't take responsibility for myself, <laughs> let alone anybody else. So I guess the question is, at that age, 
right? And 22 seems so much younger now, even than it did when I was that age. How does that affect you? How do you accept that you have men and women, other officers, enlisted men and women, non-commissioned officers, NCO sergeants, et cetera? I mean, I know that West Point goes a long way to do that. I know that as part of becoming an officer, they sort of tell you like, okay, here's how you act as an officer. But what does it mean when they pin that bar on your shoulder or they pin that, those wings on your chest that you now suddenly realize like, okay, the lives of these men and women are my responsibility? Yes, it is one of those that until you actually do it, I mean, be a leader and make those tough calls, you don't really know what it means. And it also means making a lot of mistakes. I look back on my platoon leader years and even my commander year, the years I was in command, and I'm just like, oh boy, like I was, you're building the airplane, pardon the aviation pun, but you're building the airplane as you're flying it. Like there's no textbook, but you learn by trial and error and you need to put yourself in these really important decision-making moments. And something that one of my best mentors taught me was, hey, Ashley, when you're in the hot seat as a platoon leader or commander, you're going to have a million moments that you think you should be there. You're going to need to be in 70 places at once. You as a leader always need to know what is the moment of crisis and put yourself there and trust your leaders around you to handle some of the other things that might not be crisis and know when to insert yourself. And that is something I think we need in Congress so, so much more is what is the actual moment of crisis and put yourself there because kind of bringing it full circle, when I look at the crisis our country is in. I see bridges that are collapsing. I see kids that can't afford lunch in school. I see moms that can't make ends meet. And yet we have a GOP that is doing nothing but kick out one speaker to elect a crazier one, trying to go after Roe more and more and more. And from a national security perspective, but also a domestic security perspective, the chaos that is here is inconceivable. And bringing it really specifically on Brian Fitzpatrick, I think he is someone who actually is afraid of putting himself in those moments of crisis and making a decisive decision because, quite frankly, I just don't think he has the backbone to or the desire to. You know, that's the thing about today's Republican Party. Look, I, Ashley, I grew up in the Republican Party, is that there has been, except electorally, there's been very little sanction for that kind of cowardice. You can get elected. You can be the would-be nominee of your party with that kind of cowardice, seditious behavior. You know, I don't even know what else they're going to come out with, you know, before Donald Trump goes to trial. But I want to come back to national security for a second. So Amy McGrath lives in Kentucky, a friend of ours. She's a combat pilot in the United States Marine Corps as well. And, you know, she and I have talked about this is that there is an opportunity to for the Democratic Party to take the national security mantle. The Republican Party has dropped it. They don't want it. They're isolationists. They're buddies with dictators. They're buddies with autocrats, authoritarians. Many of them do not believe in assisting Ukraine. A lot of them are conditional in their support of Israel. So give us your sense as someone who's running as a Democrat, but is also a veteran and a combat veteran. How do you see the opportunity for Democrats to say, you know, after decades where Republicans beat Democrats over the head on national security, how can Democrats take hold of that? I think first by making sure everyone realizes that a GOP majority is exactly like you said, the, the number one thing that is weakening us on the international stage and actually threatening our national security. And that has shown up in a variety of ways. Again, this chaos on the Hill, those weeks where we didn't have a speaker or we had just barely elected a speaker is when everything that's happening in Israel kicked off. And I remember I did just a very short video after 
McCarthy was ousted. And I said, hey, look, if we don't get a Speaker of the House right now, we are going to find ourselves, if there is an international crisis, frozen. We won't be able to unlock funding. We won't be able to react in a way that a congressional body needs to. And that is exactly what happened. So big picture, when we are trying to set the standard for what a democracy looks like so that way other countries, developing countries, can look to us and see us as a guiding light when we're doing kangaroo courts in the in the Congress. We're not providing that example overseas. And in particular, and here's where I would really like to bring my personal experience to bear, when we talk national security, what looks like it might be a tangential thing is actually forefront. And that's coming back to the issue of overturning Roe. And what a lot of folks don't realize is that women in uniform, particularly active duty, specifically active duty, don't get to choose the state in which they live. They are stationed wherever the army or the, you know, the, the military at large tells them. And so now we have these women who signed up, put up their right hand, swore to defend our country, volunteered, and are now potentially getting stationed in a state that they don't have access to abortion health care. And of course, the military can't provide that themselves. And so when we look from a national security perspective, we are weakening a significant portion of our active duty force because now they could have a pregnancy that they didn't intend and can't handle or, or have to deal with something outside of just focusing on serving. And that is where all the decisions that the GOP has made, in addition to just the chaos that they're inducing, threatens our national security. And let's take that from the, the individual soldier, airman, marine, to someone like a Tommy Tuberville, the senator from Alabama, who is holding all this up as he calls it, quote, abortion tourism, which, as you're talking about, this is a not an easy thing. And as, as Amy said in an interview I did with her, it's not as if the military makes it easy to get an abortion to begin with. Right. So a lot of this is all just grandstanding, but also as someone who has been deployed, who's been transferred from one duty station to another, is that it's not just four star flag officers, three stars, two stars, one star, is that with every change of this command or everything that's being held up, there could be thousands, tens of thousands of individual military families who are stuck not being able to find a new place to live, you know, if it's a spouse trying to find a new job, schools. And so take us into a little bit of like the repercussions that an idiot, and I'm he is an idiot, he is bad intentioned, but he is a moron that Tommy Tuberville is inflicting on the United States military by this, I'm not going to call it a crusade because a crusade has a positive connotation. His is obstruction. Tell us a little bit about what that means for individual military members. Absolutely. I mean, starting with the fact that he is holding up appointments and, and nominations. When we talk national security, when we have a lack of leadership at the very top of our military because one person is grandstanding around the issue of abortion, that weakens our national security. No six ways about it. That weakens us. And then when we, yeah, when we talk about these families, I mean, the women I served with and that are still serving, they just wanted to serve. They also wanted to have families and take care of their families and be real people. But their service always came first. And it is a huge slap in the face. And I say this for myself as well, where you have these women who for myself at 17, I was still a kid. Like my ears were big and my, my, you know, I was scrawny. Like I was a kid. I was still said, hey, I am willing to sacrifice my life if I'm called upon it to protect my country. And to have people like Brian Fitzpatrick then vote to take away my rights here at home, they would let me fight for them overseas, but they took them away from me here at home 
what a slap in the face. And it is no secret right now that we're having issues recruiting people to join the military. And when we are a country that has an all-volunteer military force, we're just shooting ourselves in the foot. We make it really difficult for 50% of the population to fulfill their desire to serve by not letting them access abortion health care. That is the dumbest thing to me. That is just the dumbest thing because we need folks, good folks, to step up and take the oath. Well, and electorally, too, this particular issue, Dobbs, the overturning of Roe, is the dog that keeps catching the car. And apparently this dog loves the taste of bumpers because, I mean, you've seen it, whether or not it was in Ohio. I think there was Bob Good, a member of Congress from Virginia, said, you know, the problem we had uh, was that we didn't go far enough on the issue. And this is always the extremists answer to anything, which was you weren't pure enough. But I mean, that's not the real world. Right. It never has been. It's not a governing philosophy. It's a ruling philosophy, perhaps, Ashley, but it's not a governing philosophy. And those are two different things. So how do you see it now? Okay, so you're you know, we're a year from Election Day. You know, look, you know, the trials and tribulations of being a candidate. It's work. If you're doing it right, it's work. It's real frickin work. Yes. If you're doing it right. Yep. And I have no doubt that you are. So how do you see just personally, professionally, politically for you the next year laying out? So starting with a week ago, and we'll we'll map forward, I mean, like I said, here in, in Pennsylvania's first last Tuesday, we saw just an outright rejection of extremism, a rejection of these anti-abortion extremists. And that gives me hope. That heartens me going into 2024. And what I have heard at the doors, at rallies, on the phones is people are scared when Mike Johnson was made Speaker of the House, and it was known, hey, this is a guy that wants a national abortion ban and, by the way, wanted to overturn votes in Pennsylvania in 2020, like a a lawful election here. Folks were scared, but they are also passionate and motivated. And so the issue of abortion will absolutely still be on the ballot in 2024 because people don't just forget when you make it a policy to completely remove their bodily autonomy. And unfortunately, over the last year and Even more unfortunately, I think it'll continue into the next year with not having the right to abortion protected at the federal level. We are seeing these horrific stories of of women and often young girls put in these positions where they either lose their lives outright because they can't access this health care or the burdens put on them are so harmful, not only from a body perspective, a bodily perspective, but also there's a other half of this that I talk about quite often, which is the economic half. And that is something that folks in my district have also really brought up because, as I mentioned, in, the, in, in particularly the lower part of my district where I live, we do have a lot of working class families and they are already trying to make the trade off of do I put food on the table? Do I pay my rent? Statistically, those who seek abortions are already mothers. So they are usually making a decision of I cannot afford to have another child and take care of them in the way that they deserve to be. And that's usually the trade-off. So when we have someone like Brian Fitzpatrick reaching in and saying, hey, look, that decision isn't up to you. It's up to me. And I'm going to make the choice for you every time. We are now putting families not only in physical harm, but also economic harm. And from an even bigger picture, and this is why the GOP dogs with this tire, I don't know why they keep going after it. From an even bigger picture, when we talk economics, States that outlaw 
abortion, when we start looking at, hey, can young women go to the schools there? Are are they going to go move there to work? No, they're not. And I'm really fearful that if we do not get national protections in place, we will just see more and more of that where there are pockets of this country where women cannot go and live and thrive economically. Well, and you know, too, look, I'm I'm a former Republican, right? I was never a very good Republican. I'm an independent now, Ashley. But, you know, there is also, and we saw this with voters in Kansas, we saw this with voters in Ohio, there's also an individual liberty perspective here, which is classical American conservatives did not want government in their lives. They wanted government in their lives to the extent that it was necessary and not one iota more. And so you see what's happening now. I mean, think about it. Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, is on video saying, I believe government should be in your bedroom. Like, that's not only not unconservative, non-conservative, it's freaking creepy, right? Like, I don't want Mike Johnson anywhere near my house, and I don't want any of his goons or his MAGA buddies anywhere near my house, too. And so I think that's the other part, too, which is there's the a woman's right to make a decision what's best for her and her family. You know, they're going to start here, Ashley. They're starting here. They're not going to end here. That's the other part. And then, you know, what you know, we call Dobbs dads, which is, you know, you saw this very powerful ad by the Andy Bashir campaign in Kentucky. Uh, this young woman's, I think, very brave young woman said, you know, she was raped by her stepfather. And if a Republican was in charge of Kentucky, she wouldn't have been able to have an abortion. And I think that's the other part, too, which is when you ask a young woman or when you tell a young woman, because you're not asking, when you tell a young woman, you must take this child to term, whether it's rape, incest, anything like that, you are deciding the course of her life. You are now saying your life is not yours. It is ours to determine. And I think that is antithetical to most Americans. The idea that anybody elected or otherwise gets to make that kind of choice for you for my daughter, I'll tell you like F off. I don't want anything to do with you or anybody like you. That's not what I signed up for. That's not what a small D democracy is. Small D democracy means the will of the people wins out. And ironically, and then I promise I'll end my rant here, Ashley, is for all of the talk over the decades of unelected judges making decisions on behalf of the people, that's now the GOP and MAGA's playbook because they know the things that they believe in are so fundamentally unpopular with most Americans that it's only by utilizing these anti-democratic and anti-majoritarian tactics that they can lock this stuff in. And I'll tell you, the reason why your race is so crucial next year is because I am not a Democrat, as I have said, but Ashley, here's what I know. I don't want Republicans in charge of anything right now. I don't want Republicans in charge of anything, the House, the United States Senate, the presidency, certainly, because until and unless they are defeated decisively and repeatedly, they will continue to be an anti-democratic movement. And we cannot have that in this country. And so what I would say is this, is that we at the Lincoln Project are happy to lock arms, Ashley, with you, Democrats, independents, Republicans of like mind, anybody from California to Florida and from Maine to New Mexico, right? Because this is the battle of the time. You have been in battle, Ashley. You have been in real live combat with people shooting at you. And you know that if we don't win this fight, stuff like that becomes a lot more likely here at home. And we as Americans settle our disputes with open debate, free speech, and at the ballot box. And 
there is one party now that wants to take that away from us, and I'll be damned if I'm going to sit by, and I know you won't either, as these people try and do these things. Yes. To me, when I look at the GOP as it exists right now, it is an entity that governs strictly through fear, fear of their own and imposing it on others. And what I really want people to remember is this slow drip normalization of chaos and fear and the creep of taking rights away is not normal. Don't let it become normal. And I know it's almost perverse because you have these same families who have had their SNAP benefits cut, their Medicare, their Medicaid, and they are just fighting to keep their heads above water. And to then ask them, hey, while you're also trying to not get evicted, can you please remember that our democracy is under threat? And I think that is the intent of the GOP is just to keep folks so mired in the day-to-day struggles that are being imposed on them that they can't focus on the fact that Mike Johnson was trying to take away votes in Pennsylvania's first. And Reed, I'll do you one better. I may not have been a Republican, but all of my (laughs) ex-boyfriends are Republicans. So I get it. I get it. And even in conversations with, and most of my friends are, most of my friends that were in uniform were conservatives and we always had great relationships because we just worked together to get the mission done. Because you know why? Because you were all part of something bigger than yourselves. Yes. And it was our country, putting our country first, putting our democracy first and just getting things done. And at the end of the day, your political ideology didn't really matter. You just had to be a good person who was willing to do the work. And that is what we need in Congress. And the GOP as it exists right now is going after the most vulnerable members of our community first to create this really perverse rallying cry, going after folks in the LGBTQ plus community, going after women, especially those who are more marginalized economically and in our community and taking away their access to abortion so that way they are just bogged down in so much struggle. This is a, a playbook that is one that we have seen before in other countries in history, and they are blowing the dust off and trying it again. But that's where I have so much faith in the Democratic Party going into 2024. We often say the Democratic Party is a big tent. We have people from all walks of life. We welcome everyone. And I think the unifying message for all of us is we will not let those who seek to do harm take this country away from us. We'll fight for it. Well, listen, tell your Democratic friends while you're in Washington that they need to fight more. We love to fight. You need your counterparts to fight more. Okay, before we let you go, where can we find you online? Where can we find information about your campaign? Thank you. Thank you. So if anyone wants to join or support, you can find everything you need to know at my website, www.ehasforcongress.com. I'll spell that out. It's E-H-A-S as in Sam, Z as in zebra, F-O-R, congress.com. And that is where you'll find everything from my policies to a volunteer page. I also have social media on all the major platforms. Follow along, keep up. As you mentioned, Pennsylvania's first is one of these Biden 18. President Biden won this district by five points in 2020. So we are a targeted race. And I think a victory in Pennsylvania's first will be a victory for the country because we are taking down the type of person who will lie to you with a smile on their face while undoing the democracy, our democracy behind closed doors. Uh, and I think that's a victory for us when we flip this seat. Are you a are you an Eagles fan? I am. I will say and I oh, I might get myself in hot water for this. I, I am more of a Phillies fan. I, I'm more baseball in my core, but I, of course, have to be an Eagles fan as well. All right. I know. I keep having Philadelphia people on it. And as someone who grew up in Washington, D.C. and Dallas, it it hurts my soul. Uh, But that's okay. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen on threads and Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP and on Substack at the home front 
Ashley Ehas, thanks for joining me and great luck on the campaign trail. Thank you so much. I'm grateful. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.